section three of the english restoration and louis the fourteenth by osmond airy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter two prelude to the fronde part one one richelieu and privilege the prime ministership upon turning our eyes from the external grandeur of france to her internal condition we behold a strange contrast it well illustrates the tenacity of purpose which was the leading characteristic of mazarin that even while the last formalities of the treaty which made france the arbiter of europe were taking place he with the youthful king and the queen mother were voluntary exiles from the seat of government so completely occupied indeed were the minds of all but the minister himself and a few of his fellow-workers with the beginnings of civil discord that this great settlement passed almost without remark to ninety-nine out of every hundred frenchmen the treaty between the crown and the malcontents of paris under cover of which the court returned to the capital was of infinitely greater interest than the treaty of westphalia which was signed on the same day and which expressed the change which had passed over the face of europe to realize the meaning of the disturbances which under the name of the fronde went far during five years to render france powerless to take advantage of the position she had just gained it will be necessary to refer somewhat in detail to the principle which had consistently guided the policy of richelieu and his pupil mazarin this principle was by all means and at all costs to render the crown supreme over every rival influence henry the fourth had understood that what france needed was national unity richelieu had felt that the first condition of national unity was the unquestioned and unlimited authority of the central power his whole career was one unfaltering struggle with the spirit of privilege he determined to turn the great feudal dignitaries into courtiers the parliaments into mere courts of registration of the royal will beneath the kingship all ranks of society were to occupy one common level of subservience from the king was to issue all national activity in him was to centre all national aspirations his earliest and most critical struggle was against the governors of provinces these grandees had during the wars of religion well nigh shaken off even the semblance of submission to the royal authority they raised troops levied taxes administered justice made war or alliances and were in every respect independent sovereigns of their provinces they had even learned to regard their governments as hereditary rights they thus formed a barrier to all attempts at centralization richelieu therefore endeavoured to make their functions purely military and to render the governorship as costly and as powerless as possible every opportunity was taken to replace the governors whom he found in office in sixteen twenty four by men devoted to himself exile the prison and the scaffold were ruthlessly used by their readiness to engage in plots against him they played into his hands of the nineteen governors whom he found in sixteen twenty four four only remained at his death the other fifteen posts 
had been filled by men devoted to his interests or had been absorbed into the monarchy a still more effective blow against the genius of feudalism was the revival of the institution of intendants these officers chosen from the bourgeoisie nominated and dismissed at will by the king were devoted to the power to which they owed their existence and it was specially laid down that they might not be the relatives or dependents of the governors their power was immense extending at first only to matters of justice and police but before long to finance administration and every department of government by sixteen forty eight there were thirty-five of these officers with fixed posts in all the provinces who grasping little by little the whole provincial administration and guided and supported by the central authority in their resistance to the governors and all local bodies were the essential machinery of the central system as such they were always the first object of attack at the hands of the classes whose privileges they had destroyed richelieu's task was an easy one in dealing with the general body of the noblesse he had indeed no intention of destroying their privileges equality before the king was his main object and he judged that the surest way to secure that equality was a separation of classes so decided that union was an impossibility the fifth chapter of his testament politique is thus headed combien il est important que les diverses parties de l'état demeurent chacune dans l'entendu de ses bornes he therefore did all in his power to confirm them as a superior caste while as the means of sustaining their position he gave them the exclusive right to almost all offices of dignity and emolument and allowed them to engage in commercial undertakings without derogation to their rank but he had no intention of permitting them to remain a political power the conspiracies which they raised against him were nipped in the bud and their leaders coldly and inexorably put to death while the executions of de bouteville and des chapelles who had insolently defied the edict against duelling taught their whole body that the king's commands might not be lightly disobeyed the blow however which strikes the imagination most was one which marks in a vivid manner how great a space of time separated the political and social conditions of england and france the france of richelieu is the england of henry the second by the ordinance of july thirty first sixteen twenty six it was commanded that throughout the kingdom the fortifications of all towns and castles not needed for the defence of the frontiers should be destroyed as in england these castles were the haunts of oppression and formed the greatest burden of the peasant class accordingly an immense outburst of joy rose from the common people first throughout brittany and then throughout france since the days of louis the fat the monarchy had struck no greater blow for national unity against feudal oppression and anarchy all that remained of feudalism was stabbed to the heart richelieu's dealings with the church were conceived with the same view whilst he vehemently upheld the gallican liberties as the concrete expression of national life against the papal claims 
he was equally determined to allow no such independence in regard to the crown more than once he attacked in detail all the clerical immunities from taxation and compelled holders of benefices to recognize the full lordship of the king while on several occasions ordinances of a sweeping nature were issued without consultation with rome for the reform of both the regular and secular clergy new and frequent restrictions were also applied to ecclesiastical jurisdiction and the civil power intervened in many matters hitherto considered to be purely religious in their nature the local governing bodies had by the time of richelieu ceased in a great degree to possess political power and the cardinal faithful to his policy of balancing class against class had no desire to compass their further degradation occasionally however they formed centres of disturbance and they were then put down with a high hand thus troyes dijon and many other towns suffered the loss of part of their liberties while at la rochelle where in sixteen twenty eight the protestant schism in its political aspect was finally destroyed the municipal institutions were completely remodelled privas uze nimes anduze and montauban suffered the same treatment in sixteen twenty nine the revolt through sheer distress of the croquants in guienne in sixteen thirty seven and of the nupiers in normandy in sixteen thirty nine led to a general annulling of privileges in these two provinces the jealousy of richelieu was still keener with regard to assemblies of a wider scope such as the etats generaux and the etats provinciaux the former indeed which corresponded with our english parliament were never summoned throughout his career while the latter which after sixteen twenty six were the only political bodies remaining with the right of approaching the sovereign were diligently suppressed the absence of any union or real legislative power among them rendered his task easy and at his death burgundy and languedoc were the only two provinces where the etats provinciaux retained so much as their old constitution with the parlement of the provinces and especially with the parlement of paris the conflict was more severe and prolonged originally this latter body was merely a part of the royal council charged with the administration of justice and with the duty of recording the decisions of the council itself it was also allowed the right called the droit de remonstrance of making observations upon these decisions from this right in the middle of the fifteenth century had sprung the claim to refuse to record the edicts unless their remonstrances were acted upon at the same period the members acquired fixity of tenure of their offices and a little later hereditary right the parlement of paris naturally became the incarnation of privilege in its most selfish and aggressive form taking advantage of every moment of weakness on the part of the central authority it had grown in strength until it had assumed the right of direct intervention in state affairs and of representing the etats generaux when that body was not sitting to richelieu this pretended sovereignty formed a permanent obstacle to the national welfare and he determined to crush it the struggle lasted without cessation for fourteen years 
in vain richelieu endeavoured by menaces by creations of new offices by the exile and imprisonment of leading members to bend the parlement to his will so incessant and so galling was its opposition especially in the refusals to register the financial edicts rendered necessary by the enormous expenses of the war that in sixteen forty one he determined on a decisive step in his famous manifesto of that year he set forth the principles upon which alone the state could prosper the complete equality and entire submission of all men before the king is the first condition for national grandeur and stability whensoever this had been lost sight of as in the evil days of henry the third misfortune had followed the royal authority was now again threatened by the exorbitant claims of the parlement they were thereupon forbidden in the most express terms to take henceforward any cognizance whatever of state affairs whilst allowing the ancient droit de remonstrance the declaration insisted upon the immediate registration of all edicts and declarations put forth from a lit de justice or formal sitting of the king and parlement whether these remonstrances were attended to or not the application moreover of this right was confined to matters of pure finance in all questions of state administration the edicts were to be published and registered without any deliberation whatsoever and to emphasize the determination of the court the offices of several members who had been forward in resistance were suppressed by the king de notre certaine science pleine puissance et autorité royale from this moment the parlement ceased to be constitutionally a political assembly we shall indeed see it during the disturbances which followed the great cardinal's death raising itself for a few years only to sink into a dependence upon the central authority still more complete than before it is probable that the events which were passing in england contributed to this decisive action of richelieu in any case it is an interesting commentary upon the relative positions of the crown and its subjects in the two countries that during the months of imprisonment of strafford and laud and less than three months before the execution of the prime minister of charles by the english representative parliament the prime minister of louis was able by an act of masterful despotism to reduce to the position of a mere court of record of the royal will a turbulent and dangerous body of hereditary magistrates who had nothing in common with an english parliament but the name thus then before he died richelieu had altered the whole face of government every element of local or corporate resistance had well-nigh disappeared or existed only in name he left two ideas occupying the whole field the old idea of the absolute monarchy and the new idea which he created in france and which mazarin after a hard struggle sustained of the irresponsible prime ministership it was in the fact that to louis the fourteenth at the death of mazarin there descended both of these the prestige and power of royalty and the prestige and power of the premiership that his extraordinary position was in a great degree owing and it was the struggle the selfish and frivolous struggle of the privileged classes against the new creation and not against the monarchy that constituted the fronde
2. Mazarin and the Reaction the absolutism established by Richelieu had lasted too short a time to crush out of his opponents the memory of their former influence. The instincts of privilege were awake and vigilant, and their opportunity speedily came. Louis XIII died but a few months after his great minister. He had faithfully carried out Richelieu's policy, but even during those months the iron rule had been relaxed so far as to awaken the hope of a great reaction the state prisoners were released the parlement began at once to reclaim and to exercise that interference in state affairs off which richelieu had so haughtily warned them the banished members returned to paris and the suppressed offices were re-established a declaration issued by louis had imposed upon the queen at his death a council by which her regency would be entirely controlled and this declaration had been registered by the parlement on the following day without resistance only four days after the king's death however the parlement by way of asserting its authority abolished this council on the ground that such a limitation of the regent's functions was contrary to the principles of the french monarchy and placed the whole power unreservedly in the queen's hands both richelieu and the parlement had deceived themselves the cardinal to whom the queen had naturally enough been a lifelong enemy and who expected that her first wish would be to make peace with the house of austria of which she was a daughter and for the overthrow of which he had striven so fiercely had hoped by louis's declaration to fetter her independence of action the parlement anxious to assert its strength and hoping to find in the enemy of richelieu the enemy of richelieu's policy had now placed her by their own action in a position from which she was able before long to complete his work they were soon enlightened thoughtful men looked forward with dread to a policy of revenge the queen was advised to choose a counsellor committed to no faction and she chose to the surprise and disgust of richelieu's opponents his pupil and confidant mazarin a princess of spain guided by an italian adventurer of low birth was to complete the ruin of the spanish monarchy and the consolidation of the french people from first to last mazarin served the queen through every crisis with unfailing skill and she sustained him against all assaults with unswerving fidelity the fame of Mazarin has suffered from the fact that he followed Richelieu. Undoubtedly, he will always occupy a lower place in the world's history than his great predecessor. His character was not so heroic, his personality so imposing, his energy so fierce, his conception so grandiose, his grasp so comprehensive, or his spirit so high. Where Richelieu struck, he bribed. Where Richelieu defied, he bent the knee. The contrast at the outset of his career is thus described by the master hand of the Cardinal de Retz. L'envoyé sur les degrés du trône, du l'après et redoutable Richelieu, avait foudoyé plutôt que gouverner les humains, un successeur doux et bénin, qui ne voulait rien, qui était au désespoir, que sa dignité de cardinal ne lui permettait pas de s'humilier autant qu'il le souhaitait devant tout le monde. 
nonetheless mazarin stands before us throughout his career as the one man of his time in france alone not merely in coolness and clear sight and good sense but in that which most distinguishes a man from the mass of men the distinct perception of a distant goal and an unfaltering determination to reach it if he had not the force of richelieu he was at least as supple and vigilant if he did not show himself so masterful of the present it was perhaps because he saw the future more clearly and fixed his eye too exclusively upon that his patience fertility of resource and tenacity of purpose were exhaustless brought up in the italian school of policy expediency was his only guide all lines of conduct were of merit in his eyes whatever moral verdict might be passed on them by others according as they tended even while apparently leading him far from the direct road to bring him in time nearer to his object he knew neither close friendships nor lasting hatreds for either of them might prove a hindrance to his progress and if in founding a great policy richelieu had to overcome colossal difficulties he had advantages which mazarin in his conflict to carry that policy to a triumphant conclusion conspicuously lacked richelieu was a frenchman of gentle birth and he was the irresponsible minister of a king in the plenitude of his power mazarin was a foreigner scarce able to speak the language of the country he aspired to rule and his task was while his mind was filled with far-off design to uphold without flinching sometimes in exile and in danger of his life at a period when every turbulent and selfish element of political life held riot the authority of an infant king at the outset of their career the hands of mazarin and the queen regent were strengthened by an opportune event on may nineteenth sixteen forty three the desperate valour of enghien and his horsemen swept away the renowned spanish infantry at rocroi by this feat of arms which marks the transference of military supremacy from the spanish to the french race a lustre was thrown upon the policy of richelieu which was of course reflected on the new government at the same time the support of the king's uncle the fickle and characterless orleans and of enguin's father conde were for the present secured for the court by liberal promises the first attack upon mazarin came not from either of the great interests which had been depressed but from a faction of persons who while without judgment or principle were active and unscrupulous enough to be dangerous the duke of beaufort grandson of henry the fourth and gabriel d'estrees whose only respectable quality was that of personal courage had collected around him his father vendome his insignificant brother mercure and a number of the less reputable noblesse who had not dared to raise their heads against richelieu with the most paltry designs they mingled the most high-sounding maxims and called themselves after the roman patriots whose deeds they professed to emulate the ridiculous side of the affair was soon recognized by the ready wit of the laughter-loving parisians it was the age of nicknames beaufort whose handsome figure and licentious life made him popular among the lower bourgeoisie was soon known as the roi des halles king of the market-place while his adherents were styled the importants with them were joined the returning exiles guise elbeuf epernon and others 
while the court ladies delighted at a new excitement and led by the famous duchess of chevreuse and madame de montbazon threw themselves eagerly into the plot gallantry as was fitting caused the breaking up of the intrigue a quarrel for precedence between madame de montbazon and enguin's sister madame de longueville led to the disgrace of the former beaufort who was her lover determined to avenge her by the assassination of mazarin warned of the danger and recognizing the feebleness of the conspiracy mazarin at once struck his blow beaufort was arrested and imprisoned vendome the duchess of chevreuse and the other leaders were exiled from paris and the party disappeared amid universal ridicule mazarin now felt strong enough to resist with steadiness the claims of the grandees elbeuf and epernon indeed received governments but bouillon was refused sedan and though vendome demanded the important government of brittany the queen took it into her own hands meanwhile the parlement was eagerly exercising its reasserted claim to interfere in state matters the aristocracy of the robe was a more dangerous enemy than that of the noblesse and a powerful means of attack was now furnished them it was no fault of mazarin that the finances of france were in a desperate condition the expenses of the war had been enormous and the constitutional machinery of taxation was not calculated for the strain at richelieu's death the revenue had been anticipated for three years supplies having been borrowed at exorbitant interest nor can the prodigality of the first year of the regency when the current phrase la reine est si bonne well expressed the incapacity of anne of austria to resist the importunity of the courtiers and when the indispensable support of orleans and conde could be secured only by enormous bribes be laid to his charge the state of things that had to be faced at present was that the expenditure which in sixteen forty two was ninety nine millions of livres had risen in sixteen forty four to one hundred and twenty four millions of which no less than fifty nine millions were absorbed by the rapacity of the courtiers and the farmers of the taxes but it was the manner in which these sums were raised more than the sums themselves which led to opposition the bankers who provided the loans had duties assigned to them in repayment which they themselves collected there was thus every opportunity for oppression and embezzlement the bankers grew enormously rich what however most roused the anger of the people was the knowledge that emery the controller-general of finance a man of the vilest character was the worst trafficker in the spoil and that he was protected by mazarin the taille a direct tax upon property which was levied almost entirely upon the peasantry and which was peculiarly vexatious in its incidence had at first been excluded from the bankers operations it now however fell into their hands and became a terrible burden provinces which had never seen an enemy were devastated as though a destroying army had passed over them and popular revolts broke out in several quarters expedients still more desperate were resorted to twelve millions were borrowed at twenty-five per cent two hundred fresh offices were created for sale a tax of joyeux avenement was levied upon all royal officers the towns communes corporations persons exempted from the tie and innkeepers permanent duties to the crown were redeemed for cash grants of domain lands revoked 
dues for bequests rigidly exacted from the clergy and when all was done the greater part of the money thus raised was swallowed up in the repayment of loans emery now took the step which led to the first direct collision with the parlement charles i's abuse of the law of ship money may have suggested to him a similar abuse of the law called the toise by which in fifteen forty eight the building of houses outside the walls of paris had for a special purpose been forbidden in january sixteen forty four a tax of forty sous was laid on every toise of land thus built upon and the government declined to allow appeals to be carried before the parlement parlement at once declared this to be a violation of their privileges the refusal of the court to give way was met by what came perilously near to an armed revolt the mob threatened to burn down emery's house the more violent section of the parlement openly avowed that a general rising was what they wished to bring about the government recoiled before the danger some other method had to be found the toise had fallen upon the poorer classes emery now proposed to raise the necessary supplies from the rich and by the tax des aises a kind of forced loan he hoped to obtain eighteen or twenty millions the parlement willingly gave up the detested money-lenders to be spoiled but they insisted on complete exemption for themselves and for all officials connected with them or with the university as well as for merchants of only moderate wealth these exceptions reduced the receipts to insignificance emery once more fell back in march sixteen forty five upon the toise the riotous opposition of the younger members was at this time met with firmness by the court the deputation which was summoned by the queen to give an account of their conduct received a scolding as from our own queen elizabeth barillon one of the presidents and an adherent of the important was arrested and three other leading malcontents were exiled in this state of things mazarin looked anxiously abroad again enguillon came to his aid by the victory of nordlingen august the third sixteen forty five the prestige thus gained was at once turned to advantage on september fifth the boy king was brought to paris to hold a lit de justice from any decrees passed at this the most solemn ceremony known to the constitution there was no escape short of civil war for such an extremity matters were not yet ripe and the parliament ceased open opposition the government wisely withdrew both the toise and the tax des aises but an immense number of new offices were created taxes on divers trades and many other expedients for raising money were registered the clergy the great trading companies and the officials of the sovereign courts were compelled to contribute largely for a year no further difficulty was experienced End of section three